0: Say good morning to everybody. God is good all the, time. all the time. It's a beautiful day out there. And fall is my uh, favorite, I think my favorite time of year. Pretty sure it is. Just wanted to mention to those who are hosting our home groups that uh, uh, we do have a little chart back there in the foyer. For attendance, and if you would remember to count each each week, and make sure that week by week you put something up on the board, we'll be able to keep track of things like that. And I guess that we can get started here. You know, uh, last night I had a really good, strong voice when I was yelling at my wife and kids, <laughs> and now I got nothing left. And what's going on here? But. <laughs> No, I wasn't yelling at him. I wouldn't do that. Hey, I want to read you something I run into <clears throat> uh, back a few years ago about the amount of knowledge. I just want to read this to you. Someone has estimated that if all of man's accumulated knowledge from the beginning of recorded history to 1845 were represented by one inch, What he learned from 1845 until 1945 would amount to three inches. And what he learned from 1945 until 1975 would represent the height of the Washington Monument. Whoa. Can you imagine the height of knowledge today? George Siemens has written, knowledge is growing exponentially. In many fields, the life of knowledge is now measured in months and years. And then he quotes Gonzalez, who describes the challenges of rapidly diminishing knowledge life. <clears throat> One of the most pervas- persuasive factors is the shrinking half-life of knowledge. The half-life of knowledge is the time span from when knowledge is gained to when it becomes obsolete. Half of what is known today was not known ten years ago. The amount of knowledge in the world has doubled in the past ten years and is doubling every 18 months according to the American Society of Training and Documentation. I'm just thinking about knowledge and uh, how much more there is of it, supposedly, than ever before. And at this present time, never before have we had so much uh, knowledge and so little wisdom. (laughs) With all the knowledge that we have that's available to us, you would think that we would have virtually every problem licked. And the truth is we have more and more knowledge, but our problems are just as serious as they ever were. We're learning more and more about things that matter less and less. And so we've amassed vast stores of knowledge, but we still don't know the truth. I'm reminded of a single clause in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. You've heard these words before. And I, I'm just saying this out of the King James because th- this is how I know these words. Ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think about <clears throat> ourselves. I think about our society. I think that's a pretty good way of describing us. Ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to look at all of Second Timothy chapter 3. That's just one verse out of what I really want to look at this morning. And uh, let's start with verse 1, chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul is writing about things in the future, things that uh, would be coming soon. That's why Paul is writing to Timothy, you know, look out. These things are happening. These people are coming. And he writes about this period of time called the last days. If you say the last days, that term to a lot of people, they think of it's like the last days just came about 50 years ago, and that we've been living in the last days for the past 50 years. But the last days actually has been around for much longer than that. In fact, um, we've been in the last days since Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles, 33 AD. Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, and what Peter is doing is he's trying to explain why they were speaking in tongues why all these things were happening, these odd things to uh, as far as the people there in Jerusalem are concerned. And he says, we, these men are not drunk, as some of you suppose. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, where God says, In the last days it shall come to pass, in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so Peter quotes Joel to say, this is not anything, this is something that was prophesied. And this is something that's going to happen in the last days, this pouring out of the Spirit, this tongue speaking and all that. And so what Peter's telling us, uh, maybe he wouldn't really want to tell us that, but uh, what he's telling us is the last days are here. The last days were there on the day of Pentecost when the, the Spirit is poured out as it is. So we've been in the last days since Acts chapter 2. And then Paul says there are some difficult times ahead. Let's go back to that verse. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will occur. They're coming because so many people will have been pulled into the world's way of thinking and living. And so here's Paul's description of these people, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, starting at verse 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. That's not the kind of people I'd want to be around. But, but here's Paul's description of them. And I might say, you know yourself that there's no shortage of people like this today. We, we see them practically every day. And then he says something that we just would not expect. After describing people like this, the next thing he says doesn't seem to fit. And so I'm looking at verse, chapter 3 and verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. What he says about these people after describing them in the way he does, verses 2 through 4, is that they're religious people. They're religious people they're holding on to a form of godliness they're not totally uh, separated from the idea of religion, but somehow they 've taken the religion and they 've bent it and shaved it and smashed it and moved it and smooshed it and everything else till <laughs> it's practically meaningless and so he says these people are holding to a form of godliness, although though they have denied its power, godliness. Religion should have a power to change us, to make us what we ought to be. But he's describing people who have basically taken religion and shaped it into their own form so that they could do basically whatever, you know, came to mind, whatever they thought was good. And so these people are religious, but they have not much conviction about anything. They're holding a form of godliness but denying the power of it. And so in our own day and time, you'll see that whereas, we'll say, organized religion is on the decline, spirituality is on the rise. Many people describe themselves as spiritual people, but they have no real connection with any church. Uh, They're not particularly concerned about morality or church attendance or Bible reading or uh, all of those things are are in decline. Uh, The main tenet of a lot of religious spiritual people today is God wants me to be happy and whatever makes me happy is what God is God's will for me and that takes you to some places where you really don't want to be. Paul says avoid these people. Let's go on and look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He goes on to talk more about these people. He describes them as always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These are people who know a lot, but they have no idea what to do with it, no idea what's important and what isn't. And when you look at that word truth, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, what truth is he talking about? He's talking about God's truth. He's talking about spiritual truth. He's talking about God's revelation through the word. Too many people know everything but the truth. What does it mean to know the truth? Well, first of all, that's going to involve, you know, our intellect, our minds. There is a message. There's a revelation that God has made to us. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, he says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There is a message. There is something that God has told us. And so, to some extent, it is knowledge. It's something that God has revealed to us. It involves our minds, our intellect. But to know the truth also means that we've experienced the truth. Do you really know the truth even if you've never applied it, if you've never lived it? If all you have is head knowledge or theoretical knowledge about the truth, you're definitely missing out on an important component of knowing the truth. And so, you know, experiencing it, that's the other part of it um, that that we could mention here. To know it, to experience it, to apply it. And then there's a third aspect of this I want to point out to you, and that is knowing the truth is a personal relationship. Jesus was talking to his disciples on the night before he was crucified in the upper room. And uh, Philip is just, Jesus said, I'm going someplace, uh, I'm preparing a place for you, and if I go and prepare that place, uh, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that you may be there also. And Philip says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But you'll notice the second thing that Jesus says about himself there, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. If you don't know Jesus, can you really say that you know the truth? If Jesus says, I'm the truth, and you don't know him, you can't really say, I know the truth. Does anyone know the truth if they don't know Jesus as Lord? Does anyone know the truth if they do not talk to him in prayer? Does anyone know the truth if they do not walk with him day by day? Does anyone know the truth if they do not depend on him for every need in life and eternity? The people I pay closest attention to are those who know the Master, those who know the Word, and those who are experiencing it by applying it. Those are people worth watching. Now, Paul gives some examples from the Old Testament of people who were ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is found in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Let's go ahead and take a look at this, these words. He says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Paul goes back to the Old Testament, to a story found in the Old Testament. He mentions two men in particular, two fellows named Janus and Jambres. Do you know who they are? And maybe a few of you do, maybe a lot of you do, I don't know. But uh, this is the only place in the Bible where these two men are mentioned by name. They are two of the magicians who served in Pharaoh's court when Moses uh, went before Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. There were two magicians, at least two there, who uh, were with Pharaoh and who duplicated the miracles that Moses and Aaron were doing in front of the Pharaoh. Their names are not given back in Exodus chapter 7 where this story starts their names have been preserved in, in the traditions of the Jewish people. And so it's it's that's where Paul is drawing these names from, are the traditions of the Jewish people. But I, I just want to take you back there for a second to that story. Because he's using that story and these two men as an example of people who are ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So you remember the record in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. Aaron and Moses come in before the Pharaoh and they said, well, uh, Jehovah, the Lord has told us that you are to let his people go. We want to go out in the wilderness and worship him far away from this place here. So let my people go. And as a sign to the Pharaoh, Aaron threw down his rod and it became a serpent. This is Exodus chapter 7, verses 10, 11 and 12. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And so the point is, is that Janus and Jambers were present there. They learned something about God when they came into Pharaoh's court. They saw the two representatives of God there, Moses and Aaron. They were able to duplicate the miracle that Moses and Aaron did. But in the end, the serpent that came from the rod of Aaron was able to consume the serpents that the magicians had made. Well, the next day, uh, Moses and Aaron come back into Pharaoh's court. And this is chapter 7 and verse 22. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of the servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You know, I've kind of wondered about this. You know, if these magicians were so good, instead of making more uh, bloody water, why didn't they change the water that had been turned to blood back to water you could drink, water you could use? But instead, th- that they duplicated this miracle exactly, they made more bloody water, and so uh, you know, just actually contributed to the problem. But again. They were there. They saw what happened whenever Moses and Aaron did this miracle, by, performed this sign by the power of God, and they were able to duplicate that. Then a week later, seven days later, Moses and Aaron come back, and they're going to do what is the second in the plagues that afflicted Egypt. And so it's chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers. Over the streams and over the pools. And make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts. Making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And again, you know, I I think these guys are really good. Why didn't they get rid of frogs? But They just made more frogs. Um, Don't understand that exactly. But they duplicated that miracle uh, exactly as as Moses and Aaron had done, and learned some more about, about God as they did this. And then finally comes the third plague, and this one is interesting because this, this is the plague that the magicians can't emulate. And so in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And I just kind of imagine they pulled him off to the side and said, you know, Uh, we're kind of out of our depth here. Whatever, whoever is doing this, uh, maybe you need to pay attention because we've come to the end of what we can do. But they said to the Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so these men learn a little bit more about God. From this point on, it seems like the magicians were there But they're not active. They witnessed everything that happened from that point. It mentions them one more time in the sixth plague, the plague of the boils. Chapter 9 and verse 11, the whole land is afflicted with boils. But look what happens to the magicians. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. They were sick. They couldn't make it into work. The boils, the plague of the boils had afflicted them. And they learned something on that Day also. So uh, this is what I'm coming around to. Three times the magicians duplicate the sign or the plague. But when the third plague comes around, they cannot. The plague of the gnats. There's no indication anywhere that they ever repented. They were believers, and I'll put that in quotation marks. I mean, they understood who God was. This is the finger of God. They understood that this was a greater power than what they had. But they never repented. They witnessed everything that happened there in Pharaoh's court. They learned a little more about God with each visit that Aaron and Moses made to the court of Pharaoh. But they never came to a knowledge of the truth. They were ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul uses them as an example of what this means. So now I want to talk about these people now that Paul describes. He described for us back there in in Second Timothy chapter 3, these people were described in verses 2 through 4 and verse 5, holding a form of godliness but denying the power of it. People are some really bad people, people just totally consumed by, by culture and by the work of the devil. I want you to think about these people in our own time, in modern times. Paul describes those people back in his day as immoral, ungodly people. He says they were holding a form of godliness. Who would that be? in our own day and time well I think we could say that those would be lost people those would be unsaved people they might be people who were Christians at one time but had fallen away it could be that their names are on a membership roll somewhere for some church somewhere but their reasons for church would have little to do with faith or repentance maybe they were just kind of nominal members occasional members fringe members that, you know, they kind of showed up when they felt like it. Just enough to say that they were Christians or members of that church. They might be, we maybe could very well describe them as people who are ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's two things I want to say here. Number one, we need to realize that some of the lost will never come to a knowledge of the truth that's kind of implied in what Paul is saying here when he says ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth there are going to be some people who will never come to a knowledge of the truth they're never going to be saved and it's not that god doesn't want them to be saved i mean the bible says just the opposite second peter chapter 3 verse 9 god is not slack as some men count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God wants every person to be saved. Uh, and so it's not that God doesn't want them to be saved. Jesus said in another place, this is Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he said there's a broad way and a narrow way. and So 7, enter through the narrow gate, but the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There's a broad way and a narrow way. Not everyone finds the narrow way. In fact, more people will find the broad way than the narrow way. So we have this box of names right here. We call these the people in the box. We're praying for these people to be saved. Not all of them will be saved. Some of them will be lost. And I'm not saying that we should quit praying. Because some people in that box will be saved because we did pray, but not all of them. It's not quite as simple as just praying for someone. So, that's the first thing I want you to realize, that not everyone is going to be saved, and that's kind of contained in that statement, ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's the second thing. We need to realize that lack of knowledge will not be the reason that they are lost. That's also in that statement, there are some people who know an awful lot. They know an awful lot about the Bible. They know an awful lot about Jesus Christ. They know an awful lot about religion. They know, they know an awful lot. Maybe may be highly educated. But we need to realize that it won't be lack of knowledge that will be the reason that they are lost. And there's three reasons why this is true. And I just want you to think about this. Some people, even though they have great knowledge, don't want to commit to anything until they know and understand everything. And that's probably not a reachable goal so far as the Bible is concerned. That's not something we're going to be able to to do. I'm just using round numbers here. But I'd say that 90% of the Bible is not that hard. You read it, you think about it, and I know that most of us here would at least pick up the gist of what was going on there and have some idea what it was about. But then, besides that 90%, there's another 9.5% that's going to take some digging. You've got to work with it a little bit. You've got to think about it. And that leaves just 0.5%. There's about 0.5% of our Bible that I don't think anyone is ever going to figure out and explain completely. But thank God that 0.5% has nothing to do with being saved. Peter makes an interesting statement about Paul's writings. This is in 2 Peter 3, 14, 15, and 16. Let's read those words there. Peter, finishing up an idea here, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable twist or distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." Peter is aware of some of the letters that Paul has written. Peter's looked at those letters himself and he said, hey, some of this stuff's hard to understand. I guarantee you, if an apostle is having trouble understanding another one another apostle has written, we're going to have a really hard time ourselves. It's all, you know, it's not going to just come to us uh, very quickly. But that's what Peter says about Paul's writings. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that there are some hard parts in our Bibles. But we don't have to understand the hard parts to be saved. The gospel plan of salvation is not that hard to understand. It's simple enough that in a single setting, 3,000 people at Pentecost were able to hear it and then be saved. The eunuch in Acts chapter 8, with one ride with Philip, uh, the evangelist, as they rode along, he's able to absorb enough and learn enough and as they come to the water, he says, see, here's water. What would hinder me from being baptized? He's able to be saved. The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, it's not that he's been through a long series of Bible studies or whatever. He's listened to Paul and Silas singing in prison. And he, he's kind of gathered from their songs and the kind of people they were, that they've got something special. And when those doors fly open, you know, that that those uh, jailers are ready to kill themselves. And one of those jailers says... Uh, men and uh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in a short time, Paul and Silas are able to tell him what to do to be saved. He was baptized the same hour of the night. Well, you know, some people get hung up on details. Not too long ago, I was approached by a woman in the community to do a favor for her. And I said, okay, but here's the deal. I'll do that. But when we're done, you have to agree to do two things for me. You have to agree to read the four Gospels in the New Testament all the way through. And then you have to spend a couple hours talking with me about what you read. That was the deal. Well, I kept my end of the deal. And she kept her end of the deal. We met. And I asked her if she had read it. And she said, I have. have. And then I started off like I usually would with most people. I just said, well, is there anything that you noticed that you wanted to talk about? And there was one thing that she noticed in reading the Gospels that she wanted to talk about. She said, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? It wasn't time for the figs to be there anyway. Why did he get mad at the fig tree? Well, I don't know. I don't know why he did that. I mean, I could, I could guess. I could contrive something, but it would sound like it was contrived. But that doesn't have anything to do with being saved. But it's interesting to me how sometimes, this is Mark, it's Mark chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, if you want to read it. Jesus, uh, you know, just close to the time when Jesus was about to be crucified, he curses the fig tree. And I said, I don't know. Did you notice anything else? And there was really nothing else that she wanted to ask about. Some people don't want to commit until they know and understand everything, even why Jesus cursed the fig tree, even though the figs weren't supposed to be there. They don't want to commit until they know and understand everything, whether it has anything to do with being saved or not. So they might be one of those people who's ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's a second reason why some people will never come to a knowledge of the truth. And that is that accepting the truth is going to require much more than that person is willing to give. You can teach them all day long for as long as you want. And you can sit them in classes and study the Bible with them beginning to end. But information is not the problem. The problem is Christ is asking more than they want to give. In Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler. And that young man comes up to him, and I I think he wanted Jesus to pat him on the back and tell him what a great guy he was. But he comes up and he said, uh, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's how the conversation begins. And Jesus says, well, don't why are you calling me good? And uh, then Jesus goes on and said, well, how, 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 what does the law say? Doesn't it say uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, uh, uh, thou shalt not covet? honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus goes through several of the Ten Commandments just very quickly there. And that guy just looks back at Jesus and says, Lord, I've kept that stuff from my youth up. I'm really good at that stuff. I've taken care of all of that. I've been very faithful in watching out for those, for those things. And Jesus says, well, there's just one thing you lack. And the Bible says there, it's, it's Mark 10, 17 to 22. It said Jesus loved him and then told him what he didn't want to hear. Isn't that an interesting way of talking about love? Jesus loved him and then told him something he didn't want to hear. Jesus says, you only lack one thing. He says, go and take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says, the young man went away uh, very sorrowful. Because he had many possessions. Jesus was asking him to do something that he wasn't ready to do. And so uh, the reason some will never come to a knowledge of the truth is because accepting the truth will require them to do something they're not ready to do. In Luke 14, Jesus tells his disciples what the cost of discipleship is going to be. I've put this up before. It's Luke 14. There it is. Verses 26, 27, and 33. And in the middle of that section right there, Jesus talks about counting the cost. Uh, you know, if, if you've got an, an army of 10,000 and you're, you're being attacked by a guy with 20,000, you need to figure out real, real quick, you know, what you can do about that and count the cost if, if you can't withstand him. But anyway, or you're going to build or whatever. But here's what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, And brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then at the very end of that section, so therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I had a young man ask me one time at the end of a series of Bible studies, uh, what is expected of me as a Christian? Well, what he was really asking was, what do we as a church expect him to do for him to be considered a faithful member of the church? That was kind of what he was asking me, and I knew it, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to answer him with that. Instead, I took him to these verses right here, and I read those verses to him, and I said, uh, it will cost you everything. If you're not willing to give everything, don't start. Well, he thought that was okay. And He went ahead and said, yes, I, I, st- I want to be baptized. I want to confess Christ. But some people are not willing to give that. Some people never come to a knowledge of the truth. Because Christ is asking more than they want to give. Now here's the third thing. Some people never come to a knowledge of the truth. They're just ever learning. Because they won't make a choice. Faith is a choice. Not believing is a choice too. If you choose not to believe, you can always find good reasons not to believe. Did you know that? I mean, if you really don't want to believe, you'll be able to find reasons that will satisfy you that you are justified in not believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I might not think those are such good reasons, but you'll think they're good reasons. Like, things like, God didn't do something he should have done. How could God allow that to happen? The Bible is full of mistakes. It's been copied over and over and over again, and we know that it can't possibly be accurate after all those copies. Some of the books in the Bible have been lost. The church is full of hypocrites. And I know a Christian leader somewhere that did something really awful and evil. And he says he's a Christian. And if, uh, if God loves everyone, how in the world could he send anyone to an eternal hell? I don't understand that. I just reject that. Well, if you choose not to believe, you can always find a reason not to. And you'll think it's a good reason. But if you choose to believe, and it's a choice, there's plenty of evidence for that choice. Good evidence. You're just thinking about the Bible right now. There are, the Bible is a book that is not entirely checkable. But where it is checkable, and this is John Clayton's way of talking about it, everywhere that it is checkable, it checks out. And so there are some statements that have a scientific basis in the Bible. There are statements that have to do with history, statements that have to do with archaeology and things like that, and all of those things where we're able to check, the Bible always checks out. It's amazing, isn't it? And So the, the accuracy of the Bible is there. We have eyewitness testimony of, of, of the witnesses, the four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, signed with their own blood. That's their deposition. You know, when we take a deposition of someone these days, we put them under oath. And we say, well, they're they're promising to tell the truth. They're taking an oath before God to tell the truth. I want to tell you something. That oath is only worth as much as the word, as the character of that person. But when someone gives their testimony and they're ready to give their life for that testimony, you can bet your bottom dollar that what they have said is true. They really do believe it. No one wants to die for something they know is a lie. But you have four witnesses, our four gospels, and every one of those men gave their lives in order to establish that gospel is true, to give their deposition. And so if you choose to believe, there's plenty of evidence for it. I think about answered prayer. I think about the the changed lives of people that we see. And if I believe if we could just be totally objective, and I'm not saying that I'm totally objective, but this is what I believe. If we could be totally objective, the case for faith far outweighs the case against faith. Whether a person is a Christian or not is not a matter of more knowledge and always learning more and more. It's a matter of choice. So we all know people who know everything they need to know to be saved, but they have yet to make a decision. They've sat through dozens of sermons and Bible classes and gospel meetings, but they've never made a decision. They've read the Bible through many times, and perhaps they know the Bible better than a lot of Christians do. I've I've met people like that, but they've never made a decision. And how well Paul describes that person ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we all know Christians, and I'll put that in quotation marks, because what I mean is nominal Christians who have sat through many sermons and been in many classes, but nothing ever seems to change for them. They're basically the same person they were when they were baptized, confessed Christ and were baptized 20 years ago. Not been any great amount of growth. It's just, they just are who they are ever learning, but never able to come, to knowing the truth where it would cause them to grow, to mature, to change. They need to make a decision. And how well Paul describes them as ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's our lesson this morning. I just want to say, as we sing this hymn of invitation, if there's someone here who is not a Christian, You need to make a decision. And you'll be surprised when you've made the decision. There's plenty of reasons for saying that it was a good decision and it's the right decision. And certainly on judgment day, you'll be able to say that without any reservation at all. The Bible says by faith and repentance, confession of faith and baptism, we enter into the body of Christ. And I invite you to come this morning to do just those things. And maybe there's a Christian here this morning who's just kind of I know. Not much has happened with you. Not much has changed. You've listened and learned and heard and been in Bible classes and read, but nothing ever changes. You know what? Maybe you need to make a decision, too, to let the truth have its impact upon you. And maybe it needs to start with an acknowledgment of the fact that you have not grown as you should and you need to make some changes. We're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation. If you need to respond.